Good morning and welcome to Fencing by the Book, the podcast where we take an in-depth look at the early list and how long saw glosses. I'm your host, Mike Smorridge, and joining us are our panel of Michael Chedister, Stephen Cheney, Kendra Brown, PQ, Jess Finley, and Johanna Hopgardner. Yes, you thought it was over. I did too, but here I am, awake at quarter to seven in the morning in order to bring you the latest news in Lishtenhauer Hema. <laughs> There's been a, a what for manuscript study, I guess, is a pretty big development, which has gone public in the last week. And it's uh, all sort of this recent snowball started when Jeff shared something super cool with us. So, uh, Jeff, can you tell us what you what you shared. Yeah, sure. So I was very excited for the new book of, or by, I should say, the new book by uh, Dirk Hagedorn and Christian Tobler, um, which is a new translation and transcription of, of the Peter von Danzig, so-called Peter von Danzig manuscript. And uh, in there, Dirk had done a lot of work to look at a section that was marked out. Um, so on page 99 of said book, um, we have the new transcription and translation in context of the rest of the thing. And anyone listening to this probably knows what we're talking about. Um, but this says, do you want me to say it or do you want to say it? John, you say it. Okay. Do we need Joey it to read the German first? Yeah, Joey, do you read the German? <laughs> Jerry, do your thing. Mit dem Stuck hat Meister Berthold, Meister Hansen den Talhofer vor meiner Herrn Gnaden Herzog Albrecht zu München in die Hand geschnitten und auf den Kopf geschlagen. Thank you very much. <laughs> And Jess, can you tell us what that says? Yeah, absolutely. With this piece, Master Berthold has sliced Master Tanz Hallhofer in the hand and hit him on the head in Munich in front of my grace, Duke Albrecht. Um, and so I was so excited because we have kind of been living um, these glosses for the past year or six months that I've been involved with all y'all. Um, so I was so excited to be like, get the book and let's talk about it. So here we are. <laughs> Yeah, so this is well super cool because it's it's biographical information about uh, Hans Talhofer, and um, it shows us that the this is something that the authors of this book in like fourteen fifty two saw actual fencing, and that it happened in front of uh, an important person. And it also is the first like biographical link between Hans Talhofer and the well the the Fellowship of Lichtenhauer sources, isn't it? Pretty much. I mean, if you uh, ignore the also, bit where Talhofer has the Zettel, yes. Yeah, before anyone else. Yeah. It's also <laughs> interesting because it's the only place in this gloss that actually has sort of color commentary of this technique was actually used once. Yeah. by this guy in this situation. So I think uh, we've been requested to uh, try to emphasize for people who might not know why this is like so exciting, um, we should emphasize that it's very exciting. And <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Steve. 
I've done them. Well, because I mean, everything that uh, both of the mics just said, um, that it's like the first of its kind, basically. Well, maybe not like the first, first, like we have, you know, the Rothenberg duel, but like, you know, things that like data points like this are extremely rare to come by as far as like unarmed fencing is, is concerned. So, yeah, just wanted to make sure everybody understood that you should be excited. And the other other connection between the, that this creates between Talhofer and RDL is, of course, that the Duke Albrecht in Munich would be the one that Ringek mentions that he served. So for some reason, Talhofer and this dude we never heard of named Bert were in front of the guy who was or used to be or would become Ringek's patron. Uh, which is completely unexpected. I was just going to say that looking at it, it seems pretty likely that this Duke Albrecht um, of Bavaria, let me try and get this right, was at one point engaged to the sister of Han, one of Hans Talhofer's patrons, and then that engagement fell through because she went and eloped with somebody else, blah, blah, blah. But there's like, there's a big complex web of um, social engagements going on. As soon as you involve the nobility, there always is, isn't there? Yeah. I think one of the, like one of the points, people have already mentioned that this sort of data point is really rare. This is actually the first data point at all we have of somebody using KDF slash RDL slash however you want to describe it in a fencing situation. Obviously, we know that fencing happened um, and that this was a fencing system that existed in this time and place where people were fencing. But this is the first like direct reference to somebody using something from this system actually in fencing, which is pretty cool. Uh, normally, like when people are getting into fencing situations, they don't conveniently scream who the name of their instructor is, and then somebody else writes it down. So references like this are pretty far, few and far between. Right. I think that the best evidence we might have had um, of people actually trying to use Lichtenauer I mean, outside of things like the Marx Bruder records, which we can sort of assume that the guys listed in the Marx Bruder records were like in our fencers, but like of it actually being in the real world, what would be uh, Maximilian's fencing master is described as teaching by the title, isn't he? And Ooh, that's that 50 years later. That. Yeah, that that's is like, a really cool reference. I didn't know. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think it's in the Triumph of Maximilian. His He's introduced as being the fencing master Hans Holy Wars, who teaches by the settle. Cool. I have to go back and look for the exact wording. But yeah, that, like that would... there are very few references in real history like this to people who are part of our little tradition. That, that would be super cool because, like, we know, well, Maximilian was, was he Duke? What was he originally? Duke of Austria? There was a variety of things on the way to becoming Holy Roman Emperor. Yeah. Um, he came out of the Habsburgs, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. So that would make him Austria, but then, um, which like... is awkward because I hate the Habsburgs, but I like Maximilian. <laughs> I'm currently reading Wilson's Heart of Europe, which is like Habsburg city, basically half the time. When he goes to Nuremberg in 1512, that's when Dürer makes his own fencing books, which has like 
I think a copy of Lichtenhauer, it has Lignitzer, it has um, Wallerstein, yeah, Ringek, Shortened Sword Ringek. Yeah, in short, it's a really cool like tie into a lot of bits of history that are pretty rare most of the time. So I guess the the first kind of thing to talk about would be what's the this is a description of a somebody using a play. So what's the play? Right, and I think this is a play that we skipped when we did our initial run of the title because it's only in Danzig, and we just didn't like it. It's really None complicated. We can't do it in fencing. None of us were prepared to actually go back and listen to fencing by the book. <laughs> <laughs> but according to what the notes in the in the threads say, I don't think we actually covered it. Yeah, well, I mean, we did cover it in the slicing section. Well, kind of. We covered half of it because it comes up again in the option item. You know, do an up, do an upper slice against someone who's doing its fair. But this has the the head bonk afterwards, so I guess. Can we read this text? Yeah. Merk, wenn du einem Fechter an sein Schwert gebunden hast, schlecht er dann vom Schwert oben mit der Zwer dir zu anderen Seiten. So falle mit der langen Schneid in sein Hand oder auf die Arm und druck mit dem Schnitt sein Arm mit Schwert Metall von dir. Und schlag ihn aus dem Schnitt von seinem Arm mit dem Schwert auf den Kopf. And Steve, could you give us a translation of that? Uh, sure, why not? I'll read mine. Right. When you have bound a fencer to a sword, if he then strikes around from the sword with the cross to the other side, I'm going to translate it as cross now. Fall to him with the long edge into his hand or onto the arms and press his arm from you with the sword with the slice and strike him out of the slice from his arm with the sword onto his head. Cool. So the players, there's a bind. They leave the bind to Fairhow round. You, and by you I mean Berthold, uh, then falls, <laughs> up, falls upon the arms with a slice so that the Fairhow can't connect. And uh, then follows that up with a hit to the head. Yeah. So I know we we wanted to discuss also there's a there's a drawing of it in Goliath, so maybe relevant to to our discussion of how to do it. Um, and and my read and take from this is that you overschnitt down with your long edge, and then you turn your long edge and unterhau up under the chin, and that's your that's your cut. And uh, if you go that way, then it, it'll kind of look like the picture. I mean, as much as anything looks like a picture. <laughs> so I've always thought of it as being more like uh, that the cut to the head is being more like a schnappen, where you push his arms down and then you whip your sword around to cut with the edge. But oh. it's not specific at all. Yeah, no, I always just popped right up on people's mask. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I think, I mean, whatever gets you there. Um, I know in uh, in uh, Corey Winslow's video of all the uh, pieces, I, I looked at that one. He presses down and comes back up with the sword edge. But yeah, I have some problems with this picture. I guess another problem with it that I didn't mention before we recorded is he's doing it with the weak of the sword. He's doing the slice with his weak. And we always kind of imagine slices being done with the strong, especially when they're like pressing and suppressing like that. So 
And it's worth pointing out that the illustration we're talking about is coming from the Goliath Fesh book, which is a long, long time afterwards. Yeah, yeah it, it's, it is a different book, right? Yeah, it has uh, copies in the 1530s. Yeah, so, it has copies of printed material in there. Um, yeah, it's its own thing. Although slicing with the weak is something that you actually see a few times. Um, there's a couple of pictures of it in the uh, Glasgow Ringick. Um, I've wondered for a while whether it's something that works better when you're slicing with rather than against somebody's movement. So if you're trying to oppose someone's movement with a slice, um, you definitely want to slice with the strong. But once you've, if you're trying to help them to move further in a direction they're already moving for some reason, um, then slicing with the weak can work pretty efficiently, um, I reckon. And of course, if you're using a fetter that's only been sharpened on the last four to six inches, then you have to slice with the weak or you're not slicing. It also gives you a longer lever if you're using it to control your opponent. The problem is that the lever is working against you because the fulcrum's on your hands. It's a lot easier to summon around with the with the strong of your sword, at least in my experience. Like if if, if I'm trying to push someone with the weak of my sword and they push back against it, they have a much easier time of buckling or displacing my structure. But you can definitely like start them moving with the strong and kind of push them onto the weak once they're already moving in a direction, and then you can accelerate them quite nicely, which is pretty fun. That was always kind of my take, T, is that, yeah, you're you're moving from the strong to the weak, hence the slice nature of the slice. I just posted a uh, picture in the Han Sliced Off channel. Are we sure that this isn't the picture that's supposed to go with it? Because this looks a lot more like a hand slice against someone cutting around with a tear to me. I've also had that thought, but if it is, then there's nowhere for the other picture to go. Because it's definitely not the play before. The pictures in Goliath are a bit of a mess anyway for everyone who's just on this. So, uh, I mean, good luck ever working it, out what one of them means. It's unclear what the purpose of the illustrations in Goliath is. To give a little bit of background here, one theory that I think originally comes from, or I heard it from Dustin Reagan like 10 years ago, and it's got a little bit of currency, is that they're actually not trying to show you the play, but they're trying to show you variations on the play so somebody was trying to open your mind by showing you that you don't have to do exactly what the, what the text says you can do other versions but then you're left kind of in the dark about what the other version is supposed to be or how it fits in and sometimes it's kind of obvious and other times it's completely opaque what they're trying to do for what it's worth if we're taking the Rosfecten illustrations by the same person in the same manuscript as evidence, they are clear and precise and follow exactly. <laughs> Somebody knew what they were doing. Right. I don't. I. I would seriously doubt that there wasn't a fencing master involved with the production of Goliath, just because even the things that are different from other texts still make sense mostly. Um, and a lot of and these are original artworks, so somebody had to be posing for them. But yeah, Goliath yeah. is not the easiest source to interpret if you're just looking at the pictures or trying to make the pictures work with the text, at least in the longsword. So I have a piece of information that I thought was going to be kind of useful, and then it became way cooler as I went and grabbed my book um, from my training hall and uh, started looking at it again. So this is um, 
I'm going to say, I'm going to just slaughter this word, but Guglielmo. So he is a 15th century dance master. So I grabbed this book because I became curious about the intersection of dance footwork in the 15th century with fencing footwork in the 15th century. It's the only reason I have it. But at the end of his dancing treatise, he includes autobiographical information about himself, which reads like a modern celebrity wannabe's list of the cool parties they went to. <laughs> because that's literally all it is, a list of the parties he went to. Who was there, what happened, what went down. So one of the parties he went to, he, um, which is the wedding of Federico Gonzaga, who is the son of the Marquis of Mantua, and Margaret of Bavaria, who is the first-born daughter of our Albrecht. So this is a connection to this guy we're talking about, right? So at her wedding, it says, where for pleasure, there were two Germans who used arms and contended with naked arms against each other, meaning the author says, meaning sharp swords, right? Uh, but naked arms against each other for pleasure and one of them fell dead. And many barrels of wine were placed in the streets so everyone could refresh themselves. Mm. So <laughs> that's what I want at my wedding party. I want death. Right? And wine. Um, <laughs> right. Our crazy Albrecht III, who has Tolhofer and Berthold fencing in front of him for what context we don't know, but presumably sharp swords are involved. This could be implying, and like an Italian expert would have to look at the original to see if this translator knows what they're talking about, but this could be implying fencing for pleasure with sharps was something Germans did at big parties. That's interesting. So you also Sounds German. A, um, so Paulus Cow, uh, we know in the, the 14 mid 1470s uh was employed by a guy called ludwig the ninth who is also known as ludwig the rich and i think he was uh, he's bavaria bavaria um and we definitely know that they were hanging around because paulus cal is mentioned on some wedding expenses from like the the biggest of the the big weddings that was happening 1475 I would add the, uh, my customary caution about some of these things, which is we have this tendency to find the coolest, weirdest parts of history and then assume they were the standard. Um, so, but while there are lots of cool, weird stories about things happening with weapons, you need, you know, thousands of them to really make an argument that this is how society worked and not just a weird thing that happened once. So it would be cool if Germans were doing unarmored, sharp, longsword fighting and dying all the time in this time period, but at every party. But I'm not sure we can really make that statement without doing a whole heck of a lot more research into coroner's records and judicial records and so on. Well, we, we, we certainly know for a fact that Talhofer didn't buy it here because he does produce two to three more manuscripts after the time that this one was produced. Um, mm -hmm. Although he might be doing a gots and writing with one ruined hand. <laughs> so I guess we're going to talk now about whether or not we think the duel was with sharps or with blunts slash fetters slash whatever. 
Sure. I think it was. Who'd like to go first? It sounds like Steve would. Yeah, Steve should go if he has an opinion. I was going to just do okay. a hedge. Well, um, yeah, I mean, well, first I want to, I want to say that I, that this situation uh, has been interesting, uh, seeing people's reactions on like Discord and Facebook and like you know everywhere that people have been talking about it because to me it's been kind of like a Rorschach test. Some people look at this and they immediately see like a duel with sharp swords, and some people look at it and immediately see like a you know a friendly bout with fetters. So it's been interesting in that way. And of course, there's no way, like, there's not enough details to know for sure either way. But I don't know. I just found that interesting. Personally, I think it was fetters. That's what I assumed right away. And that's still what I think. But, you know. Yeah. I mean, a duel would be fought in front of princes typically, but a duel typically would not be fought unarmored. So. I, I would guess I would lean more towards, and also we know that Talhoffer had a career as a fencing master after getting hit on the hand and the head, um, which suggests to me that it was not a duel where someone was trying to kill him. Um, but at the same time, we can't rule that out. I would I would lean more towards some kind of exhibition or friendly match, uh, personally. Yeah. But I have no more evidence of that than the fact that Talhoffer survived being attacked in this way. But getting sliced on the arm and the head when you're not armored does not lead to having a career with both hands, as best <laughs> we can guess, if you get sliced with a sharp. Uh, Jerry, yeah. what do you think? I'm leaning more towards the feeder approach. Um, yeah, mainly because Tadwofer wrote another uh, few books afterwards and he was in, yeah, he was still doing Fechtmastery things afterwards. Yeah, and stuff. there are accounts, or hmm, I found one, <laughs> um, where two fencing masters fence in order to entertain people at a city fair. And that sounds like they, they fenced or they were fencing with feeders or non-lethal weapons because it was as entertainment. They were German, <laughs> but still I think they were fencing with feeders. And oh but we we do know of that one uh Bloßfechten duel of fencing masters, don't we? In 1444? Yeah the Rothenberg one. Yeah, Rothenberg. But but even then for me what's interesting is the text is something along the lines of this guy from Salzburg rocks up and challenges the local fencing master. He wants a an earnest fight with sharp swords. And they get the jury together. It's kind of like the 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 court together to watch this duel. And then they fight with clipped swords or with the points broken. Right. So they're sharp but they're not stabby. And if, earnest if it, can be fuzzy. Yeah. If it was Hal Hoffer in that duel, which some people would like it to be. It's a master from Salzburg, which fits Talhoffer's description at the time. Then he goes off and has another fencing match, what, eight years later? So he survived getting the ball of his hand chopped up. You know, something that's occurred to me, which is the earliest manuscript that we attribute to Talhoffer is 1448. 
The earliest yeah. one that definitely is Talhoffer is 1450s. So this could be the, the fight where he it, it ended his career as a fighter and then he went on to become the, the crippled boxing coach mm -hmm. who knows his stuff but can't do it anymore. And that could be his transition from fencer to fencing teacher. Well, I don't know. To start, to start with, he was doing Vemic court stuff, like weird religious court fights making people have... Yeah, he worked as a sort of mercenary enforcer for Nuremberg and also for the bishops of I forget what city and also was part of the Vemic court, which was a secret... Yeah, so, so it sounds say. like in the 1430s he was organizing the Thunderdome. <laughs> and, and then he tries to be a mercenary from Nuremberg and gets taken captive and has a bad time. Um, but he meets some smart people. And then he gets a real paying gig in 1437, gets given a house in 44, which is when this Rothenberg dispute takes place. Then maybe the first book's forty-eight. Yeah, so the first book is forty-eight, but we don't the, the evidence that he mm. actually created it and didn't just buy it already made is sort of thin. I okay. mean, there's a lot of books that have names of fencing masters in them, like all of Paulus Hector's books that he didn't actually make; he just sort of acquired and then wrote his name in. Okay, but so, but um, he might he might have been involved. Fourteen forty-eight. So is his name like signed on the start? Yeah, he signs it at the beginning, um, and there's a coat of arms in there that might have been his, which would yeah. make it stronger, but it only might have been his. Yeah. And there's a couple okay. other pieces of evidence that that the Telhuffer might have been involved, but it's circumstantial, really. Okay. So then, 52, he uh, loses this fencing match in front of Duke Albrecht. Well, okay. let's be clear, yeah. pre-52. Like the the codex this is written down in is fifty two, so that's just a post date. It doesn't actually tell us when it happened. Yeah. yeah. If if we're going with uh, Albrecht III, he became Duke in fourteen thirty eight. So our range of dates would be fourteen thirty eight, fourteen fifty two. And then... so yeah, so in in so Talhoffer, young man in his prime, could easily have been the one doing this. You know, mid thirties when he's young. And then I'm definitely not saying that this or is our people. Rather. 1458 in Regensburg, fencing master um, Paulus fenced with his fellow master Hans at the city hall for entertainment. <laughs> Not saying that's our guys, but wouldn't it be cool? There's a lot of guys uh, named Hans in Germany, by the way. Yeah, and a lot called Paulus, I'm sure. Um, but Michael, then... <laughs> it is Tardhofer and Carr. <laughs> I want it to be. <laughs> Um, it's like a cheesy romance. No, it's yeah. it's like 110 year old uh, Lichtenauer. And like, <laughs> okay, sorry. Boarding <laughs> 65 to 80, um, we get the the book that has like Bezetel and images after Tauhofer and Bellafortis and Gladiatoria and the Fiore images all in one, which I think's. If only yes. they had captions. The... Wait, did right. you just say Fiore and Telhoffer all in one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, well, you, I guess, I guess the dagger like, illustrations are, are similar to Talhoffer, aren't they? Uh, the, it was the grappling ones. This is the, the, the grappling. Wolfenbüttel picture book. And then, again, I'm not saying that this is, uh, this is our people, but 1468, 
Nicholas, who is a master of the sword and who has a school of fencing in Vienna, quarrels with Master Hands from Salzburg. Not saying that's RP. Wouldn't it be cool? What's it with the first name? Like, why don't they think that'll be useful? Oh, Hans Nicholas. <laughs> oh, thanks. Thanks a lot. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm there was probably only that... one guy called, for Han, called Hans from Salzburg who showed up that year, right? And was a fencing master. So that's pretty unique. I'm willing to assume that everybody named Hans is Talha for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's basically what Hans Peter Hills did. So there's a there's an anecdote about a Hans Doxelhofer in Zurich who was a fencing master, who Hans Peter Hills writes in his book was totally Hans Talhofer, and he just you know did a tour in in Zurich. But uh, Jens Peter Kleinau dug into the Zurich city records and found that there's actually a whole like Doxelhofer dynasty that lived in Zurich, who, and they're mentioned repeatedly throughout the entire 15th century and doesn't really line up with Talhofer's life at all. So odds are this guy just had a similar name, but for like 20 years, everyone in Hema assumed that it was Talhofer because Hans Peter Hill said so. So these mistakes are easy to make if you just assume that there's only one guy with a name like that who's around. There was also a duel in France in, I think, the 1440s where a German master named Hans was called in from Germany to coach one of the fighters. And I've heard that bandied about as evidence of Talhofer too, I think by Matt Gallus. And also Ariella Alema mentions it as a possibility in her dissertation, but is not willing to actually commit to it. It's a footnote. And also notes that the fighter who was coached by this master Hans from Germany, the only special technique he used was pocket sand. Hey, that is a legit special technique. And he got killed super bad. It was it was gruesome. <laughs> okay, maybe not so legit then. <laughs> um, but I think, like, swinging back to the kind of originalish question, there's definitely a... It's hard to say whether it's sharps or blunts, or whether it's sharps, what degree of, like, involvement there is, whether it's something where people might die or something where they're using sorts of broken tips or whatever. But the idea of fencing like displays of skill or martial skill as exhibition and entertainment is definitely a thing that we see references to with wrestling. We see references to it with fencing. We see that's a thing which floats around. So that's a very plausible context for a, a, a thing like this and exactly how it gets influenced and what kind of weapons they're using and stuff is potentially the sort of thing that's super regional and super like, you know, okay, these two guys are nuts and they want to do it with sharps because they're really confident about how awesome they are. Or, okay, these guys are going to do it with fetters because that's what we always do. And one of them got his scalp split. You know, hard to say. Yeah. So are there any implications to them specifically mentioning Talhofer? Like, for example, that Talhofer had a rep for being a tough guy, so it was a big deal when he got hit. Maybe? Maybe that feels um, like that feels um, like character assassination right there, Steve. I mean, something that you see later, I don't think there's really any clear evidence for it in this period, but definitely in like 
by the the 16th century you see comments about this in italy is that like masters shouldn't really fence each other you should get your students to do it like sort of pokemon fights um <laughs> so uh maybe it was just notable that like it's actually two fencing masters fencing instead mm -hmm. of like two fencing masters being there and then both sending a student to fence that could well be the answer by itself right there's no indication that talhofer like Talhofer's not mentioned in a different way from his opponent, whose name is escaping my brain. But you know, it says master this and master that. For all we know, it's the other guy who's the badass. One one thing that I find is that um, the older a person is, the more likely their surname is to be included. So you can track Paulus Cow, and like to start with, he's just Schermeister Paulus, and then. As time goes on, like the cow starts to become more and more prevalent. So I wonder if maybe this is just a sign that by the 1450s he was like, what would he have been in his 40s, maybe? And just got a, a surname. I think my something that's vaguely related to this, which Steve mentioned some other time, but I think my favorite idea is that there was a copy of the gloss where every single technique had an anecdote like this, because that would be the coolest thing ever. Man, I wish that was true. You know, every single play has a has a little comment like, oh yeah, like and I saw like this guy do this once. How awesome would that be? It is a good question why there's only this one note that's like this. My 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 best guess from the from based on the things that I'm interested in about manuscripts, so it's not a universally best, but would be that a there was a previous manuscript that was being copied, and the it had a marginal note about this that the scribe mistook as part of the text and wrote it down, and then realized the mistake and scri scribbled it out again, which would answer both why it's there and why it's crossed off. Is it was the scribe not realizing he wasn't supposed to copy that part. Um, yeah. But I can't prove that. We'd have to find the manuscript first, which also would be awesome, by the way, if we could. Yeah, manuscript, like marginal notes turning into main body text is definitely a thing you see in manuscript transition transmission. Should we, should we speculate about why it got crossed out otherwise? But it's one of the other theories. Also, this is not copied in as body text. It's copied in as rubrication. Yeah, that's true. Although, I mean, which you is also rubrications. How are you defining the difference for the listeners? It is written in slightly larger letters than the main text, and it's written in bright red ink instead of dark blackish brown. Cool. Uh, rubrication is used for section headings, chapter headings, and image captions usually. Right. So we should say that the, the reason why this has never been discovered before is because it's hard to read, but the fact that it's in red ink made Dirk, who transcribed this originally, just pass over it as clearly this was a mistake in writing down the title because in this manuscript that title is always in big red text. And so he just sort of passed over it as being clearly the scribe made a mistake and crossed it out. This text was supposed to go somewhere else. And then he went back and took a second look, you know, last year and realized, hey, wait, I can sort of read this and it's not what I thought it was. Or also, it's super hard to read. It's just like a heading and like headings don't really matter. So whatever. And, you know, the first line is the hardest line to read in this whole thing. So I can see why you would try to read the first line and then skip over it. Even though the Talhofer is pretty clear in, like, the third line. Once we heard the translation, we kind of, like, 
as a group try to go back through and make out the words and it's hard man it's real hard super kudos to dirk for working this out but yeah there's enough words that are obvious that i and i'm sure a lot of other people who have looked at the transcription kick myself and say it says talhofer it obviously says talhofer and seeing that i would have not given up on this so fast why did i not read the whole thing I don't know, because I'm not dear, that's why. How many people said, that can't possibly say Talhofer, I'm hallucinating, and moved yeah, on? Dirk has more transcription skills than I do, and I'm willing to acknowledge that. Yeah, this is the biggest thing in five years, at least. It is pretty great. Cool. Pointing out that Dirk's transcribed like Everything. 90% of the, the sources that we're working with. Certainly, everything. All the literally everything. <laughs> If there's a transcription, it's by Dirk, is basically the way it works. <laughs> Everybody listening to this should go buy the book. Buy also, it. yes. Um, Jeff, For real, buy the book. Also, be, if only because you get all of Dirk's really cool like drawings in, yeah. in kind of woodcut format, and they're awesome. Yeah. Is there anything else that people would like to add, or should we look at wrapping this up? Um, I Serious, I want to hear ideas about who crossed it out and why. Talhofer. This is like any thoughts? 70 years old saltiness. Thoughts about who crossed it out? Or um, I don't know anything else really. Uh, well, so I would like to think that Talhofer paid off somebody in Albrecht's court to cross it off so that Albrecht never saw it. That's kind of my like wild theory right now that makes me excited. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like I do have to run. So, you know, Steve, you can edit this wherever it makes sense. But um, my final thought would be like for all that I'm excited to make connections and turn this into a giant story, as I think everyone is, it's just one more data point. Um, it doesn't actually give us a story, right? We all have to do a lot more work, like digging in the Munich city archives from about like, what do we say? 1448 to about 1463, just like everything that exists in Munich at that time and look at all of it. <laughs> yeah. We'll find Ringek too, if, we, if we're gonna find him. Heck yeah. Unfortunately, the Munich city archives are not digitized. We checked yesterday. We know in Munich. Don't, yeah. don't give up yet. Yeah. Keep digging. Someone's gotta go there in person. Who do we pay? Jerry, Who do we know that lives around <laughs> southern Germany? <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure we, we could crowdfund this, y'all. We could pay somebody in Munich to go through those books for us. <laughs> yeah, club in Munich, right? I bring pretty sure cheap, aren't they, Joey? Maybe some branch of Oxford. Well, could... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You don't need it to be a sword person to go through the archives. You could get a grad student. Yeah, but, you know, but I bet a sword person would do it for free <laughs> if we found the right yeah. one. Uh, I think Jerry should just rock up and be like, I have been sent by the internet. <laughs> so we're talking about Munich, and uh, one thing that comes to mind is I don't think we... Well, we're, we're pretty sure of where Talhofer lived during this time, and it wasn't in Munich, which means if he was in this, uh, you know, fencing ma match, he must have traveled to it. Yeah, so the the impression that I get is that 
Paul Hoffer was more working around sort of Salzburg, um, which is to the east. So there's references to him being in sort of Salzburg. Um, Passau, he also shows up a fair bit Vienna. in Nuremberg, doesn't he? And Nuremberg yeah. was his home base. But then he was he would live right outside the city in uh what's it called? Hof something. Yeah, so Nuremberg's to the north, Salzburg's to the east. If he's going between the two of them periodically, he's going basically through Munich. I haven't looked at the old roads. Um Yeah, he would he would be. But I'd assume you're pretty much going through Munich. Um and then there's also Regensburg along the way or Ingolstadt, which is where Peter, Peter von Danzig comes from. Yep. So, so Nuremberg's an important city in early KDF. I don't know if we've talked about this ever in this podcast, but just since we're doing historical context, um, Nuremberg is where we can assume Hartmann von Nuremberg, who's a member of the Gesellschaft Lichtenauers who didn't leave a treatise, was from. Paulus Kahl lived there for much of his life. Um, Hans Lekuchner lived there for much of his life. Hans Talhofer lived outside the city and worked as a city official for much of his life. Ingolstadt is fairly close by. It's like an hour away. Um, and there's a Castle Lichtenau, which is owned by Nuremberg in this time period, which is a market village and castle that's part of, of Nuremberg's defensive network. So it's like a half a day's walk from Nuremberg, according to Google when I looked this up. It's really close. So there's a lot of, and that could be where Lichtenauer is from, mm. although we can't prove it yet. But there's a whole lot of Nuremberg associations in the early Lichtenauer yeah. tradition, even just among the people whose stories we know. And then when you consider that um, Augsburg is in the area, it's not a direct sort of road from Nuremberg to Augsburg, but Augsburg's right near Munich there. Mm -hmm. Augsburg nearby. Um, what else is it? It wasn't. Regensburg was nearby. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff in the area. Basically, pretty much the only place that's associated with Lichtenauer tradition that isn't nearby is uh, Gdansk, which is actually some substantial distance. Peter von um, Danzig didn't necessarily live there though, because he's called Peter von Danzig Boom Ingolstadt, which means he actually lived in Ingolstadt. His family just comes from Danzig. Yeah, I mean. There's also a lot of people who we can't verify who have the right names to be Lichtenauer masters. All we know about them is like, you know, there's a guy named Hans Seidenfaden who was a scribe in Nuremberg. Is he the right Hans Seidenfaden? Who knows? Uh, I'd say that the, the things that we can't connect are the sort of Frankfurt Mark Spruder scene. But they seem to have slightly different terminology and a different way of doing things. Well, that didn't happen until after what we're talking about right now. That was How far is Frankfurt from all this? I don't know Germany. Frankfurt's West Germany. Yeah, it's Western like north, it? yeah, it's like more to the north to the west. Because there's yeah. a theory that Kalhofer was a Marx Brun life, right? Yeah. Frankfurt's a substantial distance to the west. It's a different direction. The other place which is not in this um, uh, in this cycle is actually Braunschweig, um, which is substantially mm -hmm. in North Germany. Um, at least twice as far north of Nuremberg as Munich is south. Dietrich Degenfechter is in trouble. That, though. of course, is the home of Dietrich Degenfechter. Yeah. So the the Marx Bruder get their their privileges in 1487. So 30ish years after 
35 years after this fencing incident. Um, and we have the, their history from uh, 1491, their history and their procedures. Yep. So Hans Peter Hills is the source of the rumors about the Marx Bruder being involved with Talhofer. He cites um, Karl Vosmansdorf stating that there's a record saying that Talhofer owed them money in the 1480s, but Vosmansdorf wasn't great about citations and also all of his records are basically gone. So it's hard to actually substantiate that at this point. But, you know, there's that evidence for what it's worth. Talhofer would have been old. Talhofer yeah. would have been like 70 years old. But we don't know anything else that happened to him after 1467, so it's tough. Yeah. To sketch his later life. We know that, like, Fechua and, like, you know, guilds being involved in fencing uh, predates, like, the, you know, the 1480s, though. I mean, maybe oh, yeah. Bruder, or, or, like, they might have started earlier, and, like, we just don't have records, but, like, you know, other guilds and Fechua yeah. stuff existed. So so 1444, our Rothenberg uh, duel happens because somebody had been running fesh schools. Uh, 1463, Lucerne and Switzerland, there was a regulation saying, stop holding your fesh schools outside the town hall. Um, 1470s, Strasbourg. No, I'm not going to stop, T. I'm going to keep on going. 1479, <laughs> <laughs> and Nicolas Bruchner in Nuremberg. Again, 1479, uh, same thing in Nuremberg. 1495, same guy holding them in Nuremberg. You get the idea. So what um, I was trying to say was that if you look at low countries, crossbow and archery guilds, um, guilds have more like privileges in one town or one region um, happens substantially before any of them are getting anything like a national or like regional monopoly. Um, of privilege. So the idea of local regional fencing guilds is entirely plausible well before the Marks Bruder have an exclusive right to award a title across the HRE. Look at modern fencing. You have uh, clubs before you have federations. I think, well, now uh, this is like uh, 16th century, but I remember in uh, Adam Franti's uh, Secrets on Display presentation, he mentioned that there were a lot of uh, fechuals where fencing guilds weren't allowed. People from fencing guilds weren't allowed at all. Only like non-fencing guild members were allowed to participate. So clearly there was, you know, fechual culture outside the fencing guilds, at least in the 16th century. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Andre Poudenfeld, however you pronounce it. That fella's name, Parnfeld. Um, so, so he he made the first printed fencing book in German, at least, uh, in Vienna. Worked for the Prince Archbishop of Salzburg, a guy who was born in Augsburg. These places are all linking up. Um, contains some Lucanets, uh, loads of terminology in common with Lichtenhauer. Anyway, anyway, he describes himself as a free fencer, though not as a Marx breeder, and that's fifteen twelve. No, fifteen sixteen. 
Yeah, the, the status of or the meaning of Fry Factor is complicated, and there's a lot of different theories about it. Wasn't it also a rank, maybe? Yeah, well, we know that in the Marx Bruder, there were people who were called Fry Factor. And if you wanted to become an avowed master, you had to already be a Fry Factor. But, but also, there were a lot of Fry Factor who were not Marx Bruder. We know that Lekutner uses it as kind of an insult that if you're fencing with a Fry Factor, they're going to want to parry a lot and blah, blah, blah. But then later on, they organize a defensing guild called the, the Federfector, right? The Freifector von der Feder, mm -hmm. to oppose the Marx Bruder and try to challenge their monopoly. So there's a lot going on by with people in, who are called Freifector, but not a lot of common threads that link them together. Mm -hmm. my, my, my best guess is that it just sort of means like a, a no longer a student, you know, an advanced fencer who is not under a different master at this point. So you have the freedom of traveling around and fencing with whoever you want to. But that involves some assumptions about how fencing culture works that I can't exactly back up. Um, but it may just be a descriptive word for anybody who's a pretty re decent trained fencer. Yeah. Rather, rather than a specific thing that you take a test to earn the title of. I'll buy it. All right. Anybody got anything else to add? Shall we wrap up? I think one like random cool thing to note is that this is possible. The thing this is next to is like the most complicated play in the entire gloss, which is pretty cool. So it's kind of fun that there's an anecdote of somebody doing it because if there wasn't, I would genuinely bet it's basically impossible uh, to ever do. <laughs> I guess open challenge to Arto Fama to pull this one off in a tournament. Yeah, I guess of all the plays to get like a first person account of, you have to pick one of the ones that seems like it's absolute bullshit. <laughs> this whole sequence in Danzig is really complicated and is like three counters deep, where it's beyond anything that is reasonable in a fencing match. But that's also a possible reason that they included this. Yep. Like to justify it as existing. Like, oh yeah, this is this is doable because it happened. This guy did it to so you can do. It. You may think this makes no sense, but I promise it happened. Since it only appears in this branch, could this have been added into the gloss? Like someone saw this fight and wrote down a description of the end of it because it sort of fit in this place? So in that case, we'd have to assume that Talhofer did the counter that's listed after. <laughs> or that's what he should have done. <laughs> Right. Maybe yeah. this is Talhoffer writing this, and he's like, so here's how I do this if it ever happened again. You know, fight me again, Bert. I'll show isn't you. Is this the, the first version of the glosses we have, or the first gloss of Lichtenhauer's text that we have? It is possibly the oldest existing manuscript with a gloss, yeah. Unless you count 3227A. Uh, you see, my, my mild theory time now, is I reckon that 3227A is actually about 1508. That seems unlikely, given that it's dated 1494 in the front. All right. Well, 1494 date is tricky, because apparently Nicholas Pohl, who, who wrote it in there, wrote that in all of his books, because that's the year that he got his doctorate. So he writes, <laughs> Dr. Nicholas Pohl, 1494, because, you know, as of that date. So it doesn't really tell us when he owned it so much as the fact that he he graduated that year and also Amazing. 
Yeah, I was disappointed when I found that out, but it's also pretty funny. Uh, man, I need to get my book plates made to have a date like that in. That'll be great. I, I really wanted <laughs> Nicholas Paul and Nicholas, Nicholas Bruckner to be the same person. Well, one thing I forgot to point out is the Ringek Lion theory and how it relates to all of this, which may be the, the proper wild note to end this episode. I don't know. But it's since we know that um, Albrecht was Ringek's patron, and there's a theory that goes around that Ringek is actually the original author of the entire RDL tradition, and that what we have in these manuscripts is just fragments of his original gloss, or what we have is different versions of the gloss that he wrote over time, where he just kept revising it and change and sort of modifying his teachings. But either way, that he is the originator of all of it. And in that in that sense, it would it would make perfect sense that the person writing this down would refer to Albrecht as his lord, Duke Albrecht, as opposed to, you know, just some random noble, his grace, as opposed to my lord's grace, which is what it says. So the person writing this was some kind of servant of Albrecht, who was Ringek's patron, and it's possible, therefore, that the person writing this was Ringek or writing on behalf of Ringek, thus tying the Don the Pseudo Peter von Danzig gloss into the Ringek Lion theory, which is that he wrote both the Ringek and Lev glosses. So it's a tiny piece of very circumstantial evidence supporting a connection between Ringek and this book, but it is more evidence than we had. I really wish that we had more copies of Danzig now. And this makes me sad about the Faulkner Tournier book all over again. Yeah. People got to go dig through archives. I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. I wonder if this could might have been in there. We don't know. I wonder if this sentence is in the dictionary copy of this and nobody's recognized it because we haven't realized it was a sentence. It was this thing before. Oh, crap. We got to go back and dig. Are there any distinctive terms? You know yeah. that every word? That's terrible. Yeah, this it doesn't uh, give this passage. Really, I mean, the only substantially long passage it gives is the Schreckfenster passage. And but I mean, it's just Schneider like, and Geschlagen are not going to be specific to this paragraph, so yeah, I don't know yeah. what it would be. Oh well, because that would have been amazing, but it is probably not the case. Did someone do a, a keyword search for Talhofer just in case? Someone should get Christian to look at it. I don't actually have a copy of the Faulkner Trinity book offhand, but I know he... Yeah. I can Hold on, I for have the dictionary bookmarks. So. Give me a minute. You're listening to live, uh, cutting-edge research, everyone. Yeah, but I guess uh, it's it's worth mentioning uh, for those who don't who aren't familiar with the copies of uh, Danzig, the only real copies we have like complete copies are um, the one we're talking about in 42A8 and or 44A8 and the Goliath. And then those are the only two that we have. And then we know of a third that was in the Faulkner Tournier book, which we know to have been destroyed in like the bombardment of Strasbourg. Yeah. Right? Well, we suspect it was destroyed. How about the Prussians? Yeah. It's possible that it, that it escaped before the library was destroyed, but its last known location was destroyed by artillery fire. Um, so we assume it's just gone forever. I live in hope, though. 
the dictionary that quotes Faulkner all over it does not have any mentions of Talhofer according to a modern search engine. Oh, oh well. If anyone wants to read it and make sure that nothing was mis OCR'd, I've put a link in the chat. Cool. Well, we'll leave that as an exercise for the reader, listener. <laughs> yeah. It would have been a nice, uh, a nice bonus for sure. All right. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening to this episode of Fencing by the Book. I've been your host, Mike Smorich, and our panel have been Jess Finney, Johanna Hopfgardner, Kendra Brown, Michael Chidester. Thank you. Thank you for listening.